the God. You know every single one of us personally, deeply, intimately. And you love each one of us with the love that will not let us go. I pray that you'd help us through your word to grasp even firmer on that reality today. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Inside of you is a little voice that gives a running commentary on your life. Just listen to your little voice for a moment and ask yourself the question, what does it say about you? Now, some of you are saying, stop with the psychobabble, okay? I came to church, and I don't want to do with any stupid psychobabble. There's no little voice inside of me that's talking to me. It's that voice that I'm talking about. <laughs> and that little voice is almost like, I don't know if you've ever listened to baseball on the radio and listened to the commentators. <laughs> Ongoing talking all the time. And you have a little voice inside of you that talks to you all of the time. And that is evaluating what's going on in your life and evaluating you as you interact with life. For some of us, we have this evil little jerk inside of us who is constantly watching for us to do something wrong, who is constantly pointing out our flaws, constantly pointing out the things that we do wrong. Some of us have an arrogant little braggart inside of us who's constantly telling us what a wonderful person we are and how incredible we are. Most of us have voices inside of us that sometimes accuse us, sometimes excuse us, sometimes praise us, sometimes put us down. But there's this little voice inside of us all of the time giving a running commentary on our lives. The problem with that little voice is that often it doesn't speak the truth especially when that voice is being influenced by the culture around us. And it's interesting to notice that in our culture, in the society that has never known so much material wealth, people are nowhere near as happy as they were before. This, all of this material wealth, all of the ease that we have in our lives, the rising tide of unhappiness and, and displeasure with life keeps rising all of the time. Part of it is because of the way our culture lays down the, 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 the values that our culture holds to. So for many of us, the culture holds us to the value of your appearance. And you're constantly looking in the mirror and trying to evaluate your appearance against what the culture is saying. For some of us, it's a financial thing. Some of us, it's your job, whether you've got something significant to do with your life. For some of us, it's your family. For some of us, it's politics. Have you ever noticed? that the current religion in America is politics. And boy, are we, are we dividing. And it's, and it's amazing how people not only believe in political views, but they become righteous. What I believe is not just my political belief, it's almost on the level of a religion. This is righteous. What I believe is absolutely right and is wrong. And so we have all kinds of noise going on inside of us all of the time. It's interesting that um, over the last 10 years, among the younger population, Gen Z and, and millennials, 
Suicide has grown by over 46%. People in the ages of, of, of 19 through 27, in that age group. Among middle-aged men, the number of suicides has grown over the last 10 years by 43%, just in that age group there. Somebody commits suicide every 28 seconds. Isn't that a shock? And over the last few months, we've had two pastors commit suicide. Just last week, we had a pastor, a well-known pastor, who has dealt with mental health issues, who has helped to people recover from mental health issues, who finally took his life. And people say, you shouldn't talk about suicide. Don't bring the subject up, because anybody who's thinking about it, you may push them over the edge. The truth is no. The truth is we must talk about it, because often bringing up the subject will help somebody who has been playing with that thought, playing with that idea, will have the courage to at least come and talk to us about it. So our self-worth is, is based on what's happening in the world. And it's interesting that, that for the, about 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, teachers were being taught that you must help your, your children raise their self-esteem. They must raise their, their self-image of themselves. And the problem is, as they're doing that, that we turn them into very self-centered little creatures who aren't any happier yet. And you think, well, this is psychobabble, Raymond. Leave it for some other scene. We would leave it, except that over and over in the Bible, God speaks to us about our self-worth. And he wants us to understand the worth of every single human being. Somebody wrote this, called no man worthless for whom Christ died. And if Christ died for us, that means every single human life is of extreme value to God. Interesting thing is in the book of James, James is writing to people who are suffering through all kinds of trials. They're, they're suffering financially. They're suffering from persecution. They're suffering from the normal stuff of life that all of us suffer from. These are people who are challenged by all kinds of trials. And he says to them, you must ask God for wisdom in the midst of your trials. And then very interestingly, the next thing he talks about is self-worth. And he talks about the trial of self-worth that they were facing in their days. So I asked you to look at this picture and evaluate what is this little girl doing? She's looking in the mirror. She has a fashion magazine open on her lap. Notice that, and it's, a little, it's not that clear because where I put the words, sorry about that. Her doll has been laid aside. And at her feet is makeup. So what's happening? as she looks at herself in this mirror. Okay, she's comparing herself. That was Jane Russell, by the way, the movie star that was in his, in his painting. She's looking in the mirror and she's evaluating herself against a movie star. And that's one of the trials that comes to girls tremendously. I, I ate uh, lunch at uh, a Rubio's down the road a couple of days ago, and a whole string of high school girls came in, and I watched them as they came in, and they got their meal, and they all sat down, and then one would get up to go and get her food, and I know that while she's going to get her food, she's scared they're gossiping about her. And while she's over there getting her food, they are gossiping about her as, as she's doing it. Horrible time for girls to live in this day and age because of that kind of pressure upon them. Now, with the people that James is writing to, the, the particular issue they were facing was that they were financially destitute and they were powerless. But he's, as he addresses whatever their issues were that, that challenged their sense of self-worth, you can apply it to anything in our culture that, 
that would challenge us and tell us, you are not a worthy person. And as James does this, he points out two things we must, all of us, fix in our minds. One is that we are noble, and the second is that we're mortal. <laughs> he gives us these two thoughts that he wants us to put together, but he wants us to put them together so that whether we're rich or poor, whether we're powerful or powerless, we come before God and we come to him so that he alone can declare our value. The first thing he addresses is our nobility. And the point he makes is that disadvantaged believers must take pride in our dignity in Christ Jesus. And for every single one of us, that is the bedrock that God wants us to understand. That if you believe in Jesus Christ, God has declared you to be of infinite value. Actually, even if you don't believe in Jesus, he has declared that. Okay? But once you've believed in Jesus, he wants us to lock it in our brains. It says... The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. And he's going to say to the person who is wealthy, who's in a high position, needs to take pride in his lowliness. He's saying we need to come back to this place where we see ourselves not as the world sees us, not using the world's criteria, but using God's criteria. And the brother in humble circumstances, again, what they were facing was that they were financially destitute. These were people who had been dispersed. He writes to them and he describes people who are refugees. They had to run for their lives because of persecution against them as Jewish Christians. And so they had to scatter all over the known world, leaving behind their possessions, leaving behind their homes, leaving behind their families, leaving behind their jobs, leaving everything behind and running for their lives. And so think of the kind of destitute lives they were living. We've got all kinds of people all over our world right now living in tent cities, living in places where they have been displaced. Christians in Iraq, there used to be a great, a large population of Christians in Iraq. It has dwindled down completely because everybody turned on them and they've been dispersed all over the, the, the Middle East. And so think of that. These are people who've lost everything. All of their possessions, their families, their comfortable life. Think of what it'd be like if you were to be ripped up and taken and planted somewhere else so far away. So these are people who are financially destitute. They're also absolutely powerless. They have no, no effect on, on government, no effect on their own lives. And there's no Samaritan's Purse. There's no Red Cross. There's nobody there to rescue them. And so he's writing to people who are destitute, who are going through persecution. And we would expect at this point in time he would go, oh, you poor victims. Oh, Oh, it's so sad. Oh, he doesn't. He just basically says, okay, wait. Let's face reality here, okay? You may be in destitute circumstances, but I want you to take pride in your high position. And we go, but the Bible says don't be proud. The Bible says don't be proud about yourself. But there's a pride, he says, that you need to have. You need to face the fact that you occupy a high position. So in preparing this, I wanted to figure out, all right, so what would, what would they, the original readers, who heard this read to them as Jewish Christians, what would they have known that he was talking about when he called them about, when he spoke to them about their high position? And the first thing that they would have thought about is that we as human beings are not animals. They wouldn't even, that, that's a thought that would never enter their mind. They would thought, the thought that would enter their mind was that we are made in the image of God. We are creatures that God specifically made 
to be as much like him as a creature could be. And I bring this up right now because our colleges and our high schools are teaching lies constantly to our, to our students, saying that we evolved. And boy, do they hold on to this. The scientific method says this. You come up with a theory, then you get the facts, and you bombard the theory with the facts, and if the theory doesn't stand up to the facts, you throw the theory away, and you have to come up with another one. Darwinism is a theory that we evolved from lower life forms and that we evolved and eventually, and eventually we became the highest form of animal. I love, I love the thought. Somebody said, maybe monkeys evolved from us. Maybe we're not at the top. We're just somewhere on the way up. Okay? Darwinism says that we evolved. So, you bombard Darwinism with the facts and the facts don't stack. Up. There's no evidence that we evolved from lower life forms. There are no life forms left over. There should be millions of, of missing links lying around. Darwinism does not hold up to the facts. In fact, Darwinism can't deal with the fact that right down at the core of us, we have these, these cells that are incredibly manufactured to, to reproduce our bodies. Darwinism doesn't hold up at all. You guys there with me? Darwinism does not hold up to the facts. So what have scientists done and our educators done? They threw Darwinism away and they came up with it. No, they didn't. They've held on to it. Because if they don't hold on to Darwinism, they have to admit that there is an intelligent designer. And so instead of doing that, they hold on to this. So we have a culture that has been teaching us, not just our culture, this goes back over 150 years, has been teaching that all we are are evolved creatures. We have no eternal value. We have no infinite real value. That's what the world is teaching us. That's how Hitler was able to kill millions of Jewish people, millions of Untermensch, subhuman people. You know why he could do that? Because the culture had bought into the lie that we're just evolved creatures. That's how Hitler was able to do that. That's how Stalin was able to do it in Pol Pot. You look back over the last century and the millions of people who were slaughtered, they were slaughtered because the world believed in Darwinism. And Darwinism says that human beings have no intrinsic value. You're no more valuable than a rock or a tree or a spider. You're just another evolved creature. But the Bible says, oh no, that is not true. Human beings are made to be as much like God as a creature could be. We're not animals. We, 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 we have some things in common with animals, of course. But we're not animals. We're not gods either. <laughs> we're somewhere in the middle. How do we know that? Well, God says, all right, let me talk to you about your self-worth. The psalm we, we, we touched on this morning. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Why are human beings more important to you, God, than a monkey? Why are human beings more important to you than an elephant? The answer is this. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Human beings occupy a special place in God's creation. A special place that is not a little lower than the angels. Actually, that word is a little lower than the gods. In other words, a little lower than deity. We're not deity, but nor are we animals. 
we've been crowned with glory and honor. We read in Genesis 1, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The image of God means all kinds of things. We're spirit beings like God. We live forever. We're personal beings. You're the only you who will ever exist. What about that? Even if you have an identical twin, that identical twin is not you. It's a separate person. Here's an interesting thought. If we took a cell out of you and cloned it into another full person, that would just simply be your twin. That wouldn't be you. Repeat it. That would be your twin. You're the only you who will ever live, who ever has lived. You are a unique personal creature. Just like God is a personal God, you are a personal God. That's why you've got this little voice inside of you that's talking to you and telling you about yourself all the time. Because God has put a soul inside of you that will live forever. You're a moral being. You're a rational being. You can think. There's no monkey that lies around thinking, why am I here? Why do I exist? Okay? Horses don't care. They just live. They're very intelligent. They're incredible. Some, some of the most intelligible, intelligent animals are birds. But they never, ever try to write an, an explanation of why they exist. It's because we're rational beings. We're emotional beings. We're creative beings. And notice under that co-region, God designed us to be his co-regents. We were given this power to govern and, and operate this world. Right now, we're in a room that is astonishing, that human beings can create a system where we bring light in. Human beings can create this thing that I can watch an entire movie on it. I mean, that's, that's actually too tempting. Put it away. <laughs> we are incredible beings, creative beings, designed by God to be his co-regents on earth. And we're volitional beings. We get to choose whether we're going to believe him and believe what he says about us or not. You say, well, that's all human beings. What about individuals? Well, this is about Jeremiah, one particular person. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, that's just one person, okay? That's Jeremiah, God speaking to this man who is going to become a prophet. He had a really hard life, by the way. It wasn't kind of like, oh, I'm going to be a prophet. It's like, <laughs> you have no idea how tough that job is going to be. But anyway, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, knew you personally. You said, well, that's nice for Jeremiah. What about me? Well, the psalmist who wrote this said to God, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Read that with me, would you? For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. In the womb is a person. Not a collection of cells. Not something that is a potential person. In the womb is a person. They asked candidates. He said, don't go here politically, Raymond. Don't go politically. I'm just telling you. Ask the candidates. Do you believe it's okay to abort? They all said yes. Do you understand 
the fury of God against our nation when people are willing to kill babies, slaughter them. Do you think Hitler got away with slaughtering uh, Jews? Do you think Hitler and uh, do you think uh, Stalin got away with it? They didn't. We are a nation in un unbelievable danger when we treat an infant in the womb as something that can be cast aside because it's inconvenient. Psalm says, even in the womb, this little creature that now has its own DNA is a human being of infinite value to God. But then, not only have we infinite value to God as human beings, the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you become what the Bible calls a new creation. Paul writes this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. You, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, are one of the very first things that God created after he finished creating the world. When God finished creating the entire world, he didn't create anything else until the moment you believed in Jesus. And at that moment, a new creation came into existence, something that had never existed before, something that is human with the divine inside of it. All at once, every single believer is a new creation that has come into this world. Being a new creation has got all kinds of stuff about it. We've been born again. We've been given eternal life. We're called a child of God. We're all called saints. <laughs> We've been forgiven. The Spirit of God lives in us. We've become part of Christ's body, and we're going to be future co-regents with God. We're going to rule with God in the world to come. And God says, you want to know how valuable you are to me? You're so valuable that if you're the only person who ever lived, my son would have come to earth and died for you. That's how valuable every single human being is in God's eyes. And Peter says, uh, sorry, uh, who are we studying, James? <laughs> James says, focus on your nobility. Peter, writing to the same group of people, suffering the same kind of way, wants them to understand their nobility. And he says to them, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. James and Peter, the Spirit of God guiding them, says, I want you all to focus on your incredible nobility. Made in the image of God, remade into the image of Jesus Christ when you believed in him. And given this incredible gift that you have infinite value before God. And so for those people who are at the bottom of the socioeconomic and political heap, and by the way, that's where they were. They had no political power, no economic power, no social power. They were at the bottom of the heap. James says to them, don't lie around and whine about your victim status. He says, understand that you've got status in a world to come and a world that now exists that elevates you to that place where you should be proud, proud of your nobility. But now among them in the church were some rich Christians. And this may surprise you, but in those days, they had the idea that if you were rich, it was because God was rewarding you. But if you were poor, it was because God was punishing you. And so what would that do to the ego of a rich person? I'm one of God's chosen elite. 
And so in the church, you had some wealthy people, and the culture around them was telling them, if you're wealthy, it's because God specifically is especially pleased with you. If you're poor, God is displeased with you. Before I forget this, by the way, what happened is that the Spirit of God began to work through the church. All of this got so completely upended that eventually you had a unity in the church that was absolutely astonishing. They discovered that in the churches you could have a man who owned slaves and his slaves in the same church, and the slaves would be in charge of the church and he would submit to them. How could that happen? Because the Spirit of God began to change people completely. And by the way, slavery in those days wasn't like slavery that we had in the Old South. It was not that kind of chattel slavery. It was an entirely different economic system. We'll pick up on that some other time. But the point is this, that as the Spirit of God moved, the, the culture began to, the, the people in the church began to change, and they created a whole new culture. And so James has to speak to the wealthy among them. And he points out, and he points it out to all of us, by the way. By the way, he's also talking to the rich people and saying, you must focus on your nobility in Christ. But he's also talking to all of us when he points out our mortality. Rich believers must take pride in our frailty as human beings. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. <laughs> For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. The point he's making here is that your wealth may protect you, and, and that's one of the dangers of wealth. Your wealth may protect you from some of the trials in life. You may feel a little bit safer than others. But understand, every single one of us is a mortal being. And when the sun rises and that hot wind blows, everything shrinks. It'd be, it'd be good if we lived in a part of the country where we understand, understood what a hot wind could do to vegetation. Wouldn't that be an interesting factor? When those Santa Santa winds blow, you can just see things beginning to, to fade. And James is saying to them, all right, those of you who are wealthy, understand this is a temporary thing. For right now, you may be wealthy, but understand that you are not immortal. You will eventually die. Who died the same week as Princess Diana? Think about this just for a moment. There was another famous woman who died within the same week that Princess Diana died. Do you know what her name was? Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa. Now, isn't that interesting? In that same week, two women were laid out on slabs. One of them phenomenally wealthy. One of them poorer than a church mouse. And the one who was fabulously wealthy didn't die. She lives. No, she died. And her wealth couldn't protect her at all. Now, I'm not judging Princess Diana. I'm just saying that her wealth could not keep her from dying. And that's true, too. You just keep watching. By the end of this year, you'll notice that magazines and TV will feature all the famous people who have died this year. Some of them old, some of them young who have died. We're all mortal creatures. And James says you should take pride in the fact that you're a mortal creature. You go, no, that's not something to be proud about. His point is this. If you're wealthy, you need to face your mortality because what it does is it brings you down to the same level where the disadvantaged believer comes up to. 
and we stand at that point where we see our nobility in our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's vital that we grasp hold of this truth so that we don't waste our lives living as if we're victims. We're going to talk about this a lot more next week. But one of the problems is that we've been programmed to think of ourselves as victims. And the Bible doesn't do that. James could have said to them, oh, you poor guys. Oh, you said He doesn't. Just come on. Get some steel in your spine and understand your value before God rather than facing that. The Bible speaks about the fact that we have eternal nobility. Again, Peter says, Praise to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. In other words, we're being told by the scriptures, you need to lift your eyes above this world and see the reality that the world to come is already a reality for you. You have eternal life. You have eternal blessings. You have a, an inheritance that will be there for when you die. But then James says, but also you can add to it. Blessed is the man, this is the very next verse, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Amen. I believe the crown of life is not just eternal life. Everybody who believes in Jesus gets eternal life. But here and again in the book of Revelation, we're promised that those who persevere under trial, those who keep going, whose faith gets stronger, who walk with Jesus Christ, whose, whose characters grow, and who become more and more like Jesus Christ, they will be rewarded in the world to come. Notice I said we're going to be co-regents with God in the, in the world to come. Nobody's absolutely sure of how it's going to work out, but we're not going to be one big communist society where everybody has everything equal. No. Some of us are going to be in heaven with the smoke of hell on us. <laughs> we did nothing in this world. We just believed in Jesus and, oh, here I am. No reward. There are going to be others who've got incredible rewards. Crown of life is one of those rewards that's described for those who have faithfully served Jesus Christ in this life. You know what's going to happen? Some of the superstars who've been on the stage, <laughs> are going to get just this little reward. And somebody who's faithfully been praying over the years and never been on the platform is going to get incredible rewards. God will hand out the rewards based upon our faithfulness to the calling that he has given us in this life. At the, end, during, at the beginning of World War II, I don't know if you're not aware of this, Hitler was planning to invade England. He had the plans scheduled. It's called Sea Lion, I think. It was Sea Lion, yeah. He was, he was planning to invade England. He invaded France, and in the process of invading France, he was preparing to invade England. The politi politicians in England desperately wanted to get peace with him. They tried everything. They tried Mussolini to, to, to sue for peace with Hitler. They sent people trying to sue for peace. We want, we want to surrender now. We want peace now. We don't want you to attack us. Hitler planned to attack no matter what. He was going to go through and destroy them. And interestingly, he had a list of the people that they were to arrest and who were to be deported or executed. And the people on that list were the very politicians 
who were suing for peace. And so the, the thought that these politicians had was that they could sue for peace and then they could live the rest of their lives happily in England. Hitler had no plan for them to do that at all. There was one man who had the guts to stand up and say no. What was his name? Winston Churchill. And there's a couple of movies that have come out lately and there's some excellent books um, on the subject. He stood against everybody else. Everybody was saying, no, 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 let's, let's sue for peace. Oh, dear Lord. By the way, the British had no standing army. They had a small army that was trapped at Dunkirk. They had no standing army to fight him. Winston Churchill said to the British people, that's not who we are. We're not going to roll over and play dead. We're not going to let him come in. There's a, an interesting book that describes how Winston Churchill realized, we don't have an army to keep him away. So he planned that they would develop saboteurs so that as the German armies came through England, they would be sabotaged, sabotaged, sabotaged all the way through. He had prepared all of these people to do that kind of attack against them. What Winston Churchill was able to do was able to speak to the British people and tell them, that's not who we are. We will fight, and we will fight to the end, and we will not give in. And thank God he did that, because if he hadn't done that, we would be speaking German right now. Because America was his next plan. His next plan was to invade America and to bring us under his power as well. I don't think he'd have succeeded in doing that, but he would have succeeded in England had, it, had uh, Winston Churchill not stood up against him. The reason this came to my mind is that's how I'm looking at James right now. You say, where's Satan in this? Why hasn't he brought Satan up yet? He does, later on in the letter. But at this point, he's looking at followers of Jesus Christ who are going through all of this difficulty and all of this, and he says to them, know who you are. You have incredible dignity as people created in the image of God. And you have incredible dignity as the people of God who have been recreated in the image of Jesus Christ. And so therefore know who you are as you face the trials of life that come your way. Next week we deal with temptations. Know who you are is a vital part of dealing with temptation. Know who you are is vital in case you fall asleep in my sermon next week in order for us to understand that when Satan attacks you, the Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Isn't that incredible? In order to do that, we have to be here where James says, understand your nobility. Let's pray together. So that little voice inside of you sometimes is fueled by Satan. Sometimes it's fueled by our culture. Sometimes it's just fueled by your own low self-esteem. God says, I want you to understand that your value, your self-worth, and I want you to face every temptation that comes your way. I want you to face every single attack on your character, on your person. From the foundation of who you are. You're a child of God. A member of his royal family. Indwelt by his spirit. And destined for victory. 
Father God, thank you that James sat down and wrote this letter. Because I don't know if any other time in history needed to hear his message. We need to hear it in our day and age. Help us to believe what you say about us and to live in the light of it. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.